of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Hey, Cornwall Church, it is so good to see you, so good to be with you. I just want to say to those of you in Skagit, uh, this is your third week. For those of you who have uh, decided to go back to the building, third week back in the building, and the last two weeks I've been able to be with you, and it was so great uh, to see some of you down there. And for those of you at the Bellingham campus, this is our first weekend back open here in the building. It's a little bit different, but uh, I'm glad that uh, you are here. And, and besides, check out all the legroom that you have, and no one is in your personal space, so there's some great benefits, but it has taken everything within me not to hug every single one of you today. I just I so want to do that. But keeping the distance. And for the vast majority of you who are still watching online, we're so grateful that you've joined us today and we will continue to, to offer this. And we're glad that we can uh, celebrate and worship together and look into God's word. So whether you're in Skagit or here in Bellingham or at home or watching online on your phone, wherever you are, I've got a question for you. Are you ready for the best sermon ever? I mean, the best, hands down, bar none, the best sermon ever. The best sermon you've ever heard in your life. The most impactful, most insightful, most profound, most powerful, most life-altering sermon, not only in the 114-year history of Cornwall Church, but the best sermon in all of human history. Are you ready for that sermon? Because if so, you are in the right place. Because starting today, for the next 12 weeks, we're going to, no, it's not about my sermon if you were thinking that. Oh, oh heavens no, I, I hope that, that didn't come across that way. Starting today for the next 12 weeks, we are going to immerse ourselves. We are going to learn from, we are going to study, we are going to be transformed by the best sermon that was ever preached on the face of this planet. It was preached by Jesus, and most of us know it by the title, The Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's not a title that Jesus gave to it. In fact, that title is attributed to St. Augustine in the fourth century that he nicknamed it the Sermon on the Mount. But it's this sermon that we are going to just take apart and learn and grow from. We're calling this series Kingdom Culture because really in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about life in the kingdom culture. We'll get to that. And this whole idea, the, the message of the kingdom of God was that, is that the kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available to ordinary human beings, like here and now. That daily we can, we can experience and live in God's presence and his power. So this is going to be a study of the best sermon ever. 
I say all that, and now I need to say this. While we're going to spend from now until almost Christmas looking at this, today is going to be foundational, and today I want to talk more about this concept of kingdom, because that lays the groundwork for the Sermon on the Mount. So while we are going to study the Sermon on the Mount today in our time, we're actually not going to get into it very much. I want us to focus on the thought of the kingdom and the kingdom of God. With that, what I want to uh, also say right up front is that my thinking, my understanding, my content uh, for this sermon has been uh, greatly influenced by especially three different individuals, three guys that are much smarter than me. I've, I've borrowed heavily from them. Uh, and the first time I started getting this understanding of the kingdom of God was about 15 or 16 years ago. I heard a, a sermon by John Ortberg on the kingdom of God. And during that sermon, he kept referencing a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. So after the sermon, I promptly went out and bought the book The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. This is not an easy book to read. This is a deep book. And truth be told, I have spent the last 15 years trying to work my way through this book. I haven't done it yet. There's bits and pieces of it. I would always go back to John Orberg to kind of get the interpretation of what is Dallas really trying to say. So a few years ago, John Orberg published this book, Eternity is Now in Session. I call this Dallas for Dummies. It's kind of a sum of Dallas Willard, but in a, in a version that I can understand. And then about six years ago, I heard a guy named Reggie McNeil talk about the kingdom of God at a conference, and I asked him, he had a late night flight uh, back to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth from the Portland area. I said, can I take you to the airport? He said, sure, can we stop and have dinner on the way? So I sat at dinner with, with Reggie McNeil to pick his brain about the kingdom of God, and he wrote uh, this book, Kingdom Come. These three guys have greatly influenced me, and I would have to say this, there's absolutely nothing that I came up with on my own for this sermon. It's really from the influence of those three guys. So we're going to talk about the kingdom. Are you ready? Speaking of kingdom, in Israel, the greatest king that they ever had, the greatest earthly king, obviously, was King David. And under King David's leadership of the kingdom, they were in their glory days. It, it never returned to that level again. David was not only a great leader... He was a great political leader. He was a great military leader, but he was also a musician and he was a poet. And as most of you are aware, he wrote many of the Psalms that are in the Bible, in the book of Psalms. He, he wrote many of those. And one of the Psalms that he writes, a beautiful Psalm, is Psalm 145. If you haven't read Psalm 145 in a while, read that. It's, it's absolutely spectacular as he just extols the greatness and the goodness of our heavenly father. And in the midst of that, as he's just talking about all the goodness of God, all the greatness of God, he makes this statement about the kingdom of God. And the statement that he makes is either grossly exaggerated, hyperbole, like trying to just like overstate something, or it's mysteriously beautiful and profound. In Psalm 145, verse 13, he writes these words, your kingdom, talking about the Lord, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Now, this whole idea of the kingdom being an everlasting kingdom, you think of David is a king. He has a kingdom. It's in a glorious kingdom. But they've also seen other kingdoms rise and fall. They've seen empires come and go. They had been, as we studied last summer, they had been a part of, of slaves under the Egyptian 
kingdom and rule. There had been the Assyrians who had been world powers, the Medo-Persians, there had been the Babylonians, and there would be the Romans, that there would be these kingdoms. Now, some of you who are old enough to remember uh, Bill Gaither, you, you remember that song where he says, kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. Here's David and he's writing, he says, your king, your king is a forever king, a kingdom, it's an everlasting kingdom. And then he talks about dominion. And this is kind of important too because dominion is a kingdom word. Dominion means your rule, your authority, your sovereignty, uh, um, your, your, your will, that, that you are the supreme one here, that you are reigning over that. And he says, your dominion, your rule, it's for generation after generation. Now, some of you would say, yeah, I believe that on a cosmic eternal level, but it's a little bit confusing because the world we live in doesn't seem like God's kingdom is doing very good and that his dominion is still like in charge. We're gonna to get to that in a, in a moment. Hold on to that thought. Remember this message about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is now through Jesus, it's available to ordinary human beings so that there's this daily reality in the presence and the power of God. So the writer of Hebrews, a thousand years after David writes these words, the writer of Hebrews writes these words, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That in a world where everything is falling apart, he says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And because of that, we can worship God. We can be grateful. We, we can understand how amazing God is and what life is like in this kingdom, even in spite of what's happening in our world. Now, if that's true, the message is very clear that the kingdom of God, this kingdom, like it's secure forever. The kingdom of God is secure forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is for generations. It's an unshakable kingdom. And if that's true, and if it's true that we can be a part of that kingdom, then it means that no matter what we face, we can have a life that is secure and unshakable and secure in the kingdom of God. That means that no matter how long the pandemic lasts, that means that no matter who gets elected in November, that means no matter who gets supported to this, uh, 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 appointed to the Supreme Court justices, matters no, no matter what happens at Wall Street, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what uh, persecution we face, no matter what, we can be secure in the kingdom of God. That's why... That's why you see in the early church, people that were going through difficult times, they would still be secure. That's why you will see in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus would say, when people insult you and persecute you and, and, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, <laughs> rejoice. Wait, wait, what? Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's why Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount would say, if you hear these words and build your life on them, you're built on a solid rock and the storms will come and the flood. Okay, now I'm 12 weeks ahead of myself, so I got to stop. What he's saying is this, if it's true that this kingdom is an unshakable kingdom and that we're a part of this kingdom, no matter what we face in this world, good and bad, that we're gonna be okay because we're living in the reality of the presence and the power of God every single day. We have that kingdom within us. All right, Friday, 
uh, for some of you, you are aware of this. Friday was September 25th. What that means is now we are less than three months away from Christmas. That is not giving you permission to start listening to Christmas music. I'm not saying that. That is not giving you permission to plug in your Christmas lights, those of you who leave them up all year. That's not to freak you out to try and go buy a present now or whatever. I'm just saying we're less than three, week, three months away from Christmas. So I'm going to give you a little pre-Christmas, a little Christmas in September. Because every Christmas, it seems, we reference this Christmas prophecy out of Isaiah. It, it tells about the birth of this one. And in Isaiah chapter, seven, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, it says that a, 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 a child a child will be born, a son will be given, and then these titles, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What beautiful, I mean, what preacher hasn't preached those verses? What often doesn't get nearly as much airtime is the following verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, when it says, and of the increase of his government, his administration, his kingdom and his peace, there will be no end. Here it is, that eternal thing. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's this, this prophecy that there would be this anointed one, this Messiah, this king that would come and that he would reign and he would rule from that point eternally, forever. And it was this prophecy and more like it, and these promises that Israel would hold on to, this hope of this anointed one, of this Messiah, of this Christ, who would come and set up a kingdom, who would set all things right, who would restore it back to the glory days of David and even beyond, and it would continue on. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited 700 years, and some people had given up. Some people thought, he'll never sin this, this, this is never going to happen, or it'll never happen in our lifetime. And 700 years later, there's this young, poor, godly teenage girl from a little throwaway town. And here she is serving God. And one day she is visited by the angel Gabriel. And he says to her, you're going to have a son. And she knows that she's been honoring God with her body and her sexuality and she hasn't ever had sexual relationships with a man and how could this be and, and she wouldn't and, and, and all that. And he says, no, 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 this will be of the Holy Spirit. And while that was shocking news to her, I think what was probably even more shocking is when Gabriel explains about this child that she will give birth to. And Gabriel says these words to her, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Could this be? I mean, can you imagine how mind-blowing this would have been to a teenage girl that this one that their whole nation had waited for for 700 years, that she was going to give birth to this one, and he would reign, and he would be the king, he would be the Messiah? And as she treasured these things and held on to them in her heart and nine months came and went and then she gives birth and, it, and it's unbelievable. 
like these shepherds she's never even met before. They come and they're talking about an angel and how they were sore afraid and, and the angel and the glory of the Lord and, and, and you know, glory to God in the highest. And they're saying, for unto, he said, for unto us a savior is born. They're saying, this baby, we, we don't even know you people, but this baby is the savior. And then there were the Magi come from the East, these men that she didn't even know and probably an entourage. There may have been tens or even hundreds of people with this entourage, not just three guys wandering in out of the desert off camels. And they're giving these expensive gifts. And then they go to the temple to dedicate Jesus. And there's this old man they've never met before. His name is Simeon, man full of the Holy Spirit. A man who it says has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the rescue of Israel. Waiting for the comfort of Israel. Waiting for the Messiah, the Christ. And he's led to go to the temple. And he sees this young couple with this little baby boy. And he takes this boy, I think of like the Lion King, you know, oh. he, he takes this little baby boy and he says in their very presence, God, your promise has come true. I can die now. I have seen your salvation, the light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Can you imagine what's going through Mary's mind or all this stuff? The angel and the shepherds and their angels and the Magi and now the Simeon. And then she raises this boy. And while he is spectacular, there's nothing like about the kingdom or anything. And 30 years passed. And then Jesus is baptized. And then he goes and he's tempted by the, by the enemy. And then he starts his ministry. And look at what he says found in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. This is the euangelion. This is the, the word gospel, uh, evangelism. If it's not good news, it's not gospel, okay? He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is good news. It's the good news of God and it's the kingdom of God and it's come. You might say, well, that's a nice little introductory message to start and to launch his ministry. It wasn't just an introductory message. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, turns to Isaiah chapter 61, which is a prophecy about the Messiah to come. He reads this prophecy and he says, today in your, in your midst, this has been fulfilled. I am the fulfillment of it. They, they tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off of a, off of a cliff. This is found in Luke chapter 4. Later in that same chapter, Luke chapter four, he said, I must preach the, here it is again, the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus said, you want to know why I came to earth? We said, well, it's because he was going to be crucified. Yes, yes, yes. But his purpose, the reason he came was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, this is my mission. This is my calling. This is why I'm here that now the kingdom of God is available to ordinary people through me so that you can experience on a daily basis the life and the power and the presence of God. And he goes on, it's not just then. In Luke chapter eight, he goes on and says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming, here it is again. This isn't just an opening sermon. This is his obsession. This is his one track uh, talk. The good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. You might be saying, well, so what is the good news of the kingdom of God? No, no, no. The kingdom of God is the good news. 
It is the good news that now it's available to us, not just to them, to us, to you and me on a daily basis. And he's got the 12 with them and they're hearing him preach this message over and over again. But he doesn't stop there. Look in verse, uh, chapter nine, verse two. He says, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now he sends his 12 disciples. I says, guys, you've heard me do this. You've heard me talk about the kingdom of God is here. It's now. I want you to go and preach this. And for three years, Jesus taught more about the kingdom of God. He spoke more about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, than anything else, any other subject matter. I mean, read his parables. How many times does he start a parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll tell a story. He's always pointing people to this kingdom of heaven over and over again. You know, the word that we translate as church, ecclesia, which actually meant gathering, Jesus uses that word in the recorded uh, gospels. He uses that word three times, but he references the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom 80 or 90 times. To say that he was interested in the kingdom of God is a gross understatement. He was driven by the kingdom of God. He was, he was obsessed with getting this message, this good news message about the kingdom of God for three years. He preaches this message over and over again. And then he's crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And then we read this in Acts chapter one, verse three. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about any guesses. Why would his message change now? He comes back from the dead and what does he speak about? How tough it was being dead for three days? No, no, no. He speaks about the kingdom of God. That was his driving force. It's the kingdom of God. And as he goes back to be with the, the Father and the Holy Spirit is sent and those go and then a man named Saul is converted and the very last verse in the book of Acts, the last verse that talks about the New Testament church in the book of Acts it talks about the apostle Paul. And what does it say? Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very, very significant piece of the New Testament and we don't give it enough attention. Now, let's go back full circle to that first verse that I showed you out of Luke chapter one, verse 15, or Mark chapter one, 15, excuse me, when Jesus said, the time has come. And, and, and this whole idea of the time has come is like, time's up. I mean, we're, we're out of time. It's happening now. For those of you ladies who've had babies, this is when you're nine months and a week pregnant, okay? Time's up. It, the time's come. No more. I mean, this baby's coming. For, okay, for a lot of you, you can't relate to that. For those Mariner fans of yours, you know, if you think, what if... There was actually a day, because you guys are broken records. Every year you say the same thing. This could be the year. This is the year. What if they actually ever did make it into the World Series? It's like, the time has come. It's happening. And Jesus is saying, hey, you've been waiting hundreds of years. You, you've been longing for this. You've been praying for this. You've been pining for this. And the time has come. Time's up. It's here. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news that you can dwell in God's presence and in his power today and every day. I want to take just a moment to talk about this word repent. Because so often, when we hear the word repent, we think, 
Well, that's like confessing your sins, right? That's like saying you're sorry, right? And, and, and maybe that's a part of it, yes. But the word repent, its, it's meaning is far more robust, shall we say. I've always wanted to use that word. A, a far more robust meaning of, of repent. The transliteration of the Greek word is metanoia. And it means not just saying you're sorry. It means a complete turnaround, a 180 out. So when Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, he's not saying, say you're sorry, and now believe the good news. What he's saying is, no, this kingdom of God, to understand it, to live in it, you, you need to completely change the way that you're thinking, completely change your perspective, completely change your lens, completely change your worldview, completely change your priorities, completely change your, your passions. It's to turn around your values and the way you live your life, the way you interact with others, how you respond when you've been wronged, how you have you know, your, your relations with your family and with your friends and with your enemies, how you manage your financial world, how you manage your body, what you do with your sexuality. He says, I want you to turn all of this around. It's the repent and believe the good news. It's not just saying you're sorry. See, this whole idea of repenting is this idea of, of, of being distinctive in counterculture, all right? So it's like this. Those who are citizens in the kingdom of God are to be distinctive, different than the rest of the world. And this kingdom is a, is a counterculture kingdom. And the community of the kingdom of God is a, is a counterculture uh, community. Like, it's completely different. There's a, a radical change, a complete reversal. D Dallas Willard, I mentioned Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard refers to it as the great inversion, to turn it upside down. And when you turn it upside down, you actually turn it right side up because it's how God originally intended it in the first place. Last week, I was having coffee with uh, my friend J.J. Johnson. J.J. is the pastor of The Bridge here in Bellingham. Great guy. Love J.J. We were just talking about life in the COVID season and as a pastor and all this stuff. So as we were talking about going into the fall, I was saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be uh, tearing into the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm really excited about it. He goes, oh, man, I just preached on the Sermon on the Mount a year or so ago. And he said, I, I entitled my series Uprooted. Because when you really understand the Sermon on the Mount, everything our world says, all the values, all the priorities, the way that we think, Jesus just uproots it, but he turns it around and uproots it into the ways of heaven. I'm like, that is such a beautiful picture. We're uprooted from this corrupt, twisted, dark way of this world, and now we are uprooted into the truth of God and heaven. Uh, one of the commentaries that I read said that in this understanding of this repent, this complete reversal, said the key verse for understanding that in all of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, where Jesus said, do not be like them. Like this is different. The way the world operates, the world operates with their priorities about power and position, you know, the prestige that comes with that about your own pleasure and your own comfort, about success, about recognition, about self, about greatness, about you know, scaling up 
And he says, in the kingdom, it's just the opposite. Like those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And, and those who are meek. And those who are humble. And those who are filled with grace and mercy. And those who are generous. And it just completely turns it upside down. Now you might say, well, with Jesus, isn't it possible that he is, as he's teaching this Sermon on the Mount, isn't it possible that he, he's using exaggeration to make a point? I mean, he, he's been known to do that, and he has. There are times where he'll overstate something to make a point, and couldn't this whole thing be hyperbole? Or, or better yet, isn't it possible that what Jesus is talking about is the way things will be someday when he comes back and he sets all things right? And I get both of those arguments. But usually we use those arguments as an aversion from having to find out what is Jesus really talking about. And when you read these words, you begin to understand that Jesus is not talking on some lofty philosophical level. It's not just some, some utopian uh, you know, ideal, but it's a gritty reality. He recognizes and never denies the truth that we live in a fallen, dark, broken, evil world. He understands that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He gets that. But what he's saying is, in the kingdom of God, my followers will, will live in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the darkness, in spite of the evil, in spite of those things. And when they live in the power and the presence of God on a daily basis, they will be a light to this world that will dispel the darkness. They will be like the salt of this earth that, 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 that purifies that which is corrupt and preserves that which is good. They will make a difference in this world. They will change everything. And you remember, um, you remember I said dominion is a kingdom word. Dominion, this idea of I guess, authority in charge. Um, we all have this. Maybe you have dominion of your family or of your team that you work uh, with or your business or you have dominion uh, in your car it's, or your bedroom or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, you're the one that's in charge. You're the one that, that sets the rules. You're the one that says what happens and what goes. And because it's your little kingdom, that's your dominion. When we talk about the kingdom of God, Dallas Willard references it this way, that the kingdom of God is the effective range, the range of God's effective will. Where God says, this is what we're going to do. This is what is going to happen. And whenever anyone steps into that, they are a part of his kingdom. And so as Jesus talks about the kingdom, he begins to paint this picture of what does it look like when an individual, when a man or a woman, when a community, when a group, when a church decides that they will submit themselves into the gracious, loving rule of the king. What happens then? How do they live their life then? And what happens in this world? And when we do that, the impact is not only that it changes us, but it changes the world. I mentioned uh, Reggie McNeil. And when he talks about the kingdom of God, 
He, he defines it and narrows it down to this whole idea that life as God has always intended. That, that as we walk into the kingdom of God, that we experience the life that we were created to live in the first place from the author of life. But it's not just us. And it's not just the church. And it's not just us in our little club. Because as we continue to walk in this kingdom of God, we are being transformed. And he states it this way, that the kingdom of God breaks into my life. And then as I'm transformed, it breaks out into this world so there's healing and hope and, and help for others. That now it's not just this life as God intended it for me, but now I become a part of this kingdom agent, this, as it says in, in the next Christian's book, the kingdom bringer that I become a partner with Jesus in bringing life to others to, so that they can experience life as God has always intended. I mentioned John Ortberg and his influence, and he illustrates it this way. In this whole idea of, of dominion or kingdoms, that you have one, I have one, we have one, and then these kingdoms, they, they intermix, and then there's, there's grander kingdoms, and there's kingdoms of systems, and there's organizations and corporations and churches and schools and teams and neighborhoods and countries and all that. And, and he illustrates it this way, that all of those kingdoms um, could be referred to as the kingdom of earth, that all of the, these, all these kingdoms, all of these domains, where, where, where my dominion is, or, or where this company is, or where this, this school is, or this church, or this organization, or this country, or, or this state, or, or whatever it might be, that they all are conglomerated under this umbrella of the kingdom of earth. But Jesus also taught that there's another domain, and it's a spiritual domain, and it's real, and it exists not just somewhere out there, and not just somewhere in the future, but it exists here and now. And it's what we've been talking about, the kingdom of God. And Jesus would say, this kingdom, imagine a society that follows the will, the word, the way that God has things to be, where ego and pride doesn't come into play, but where there's humility, where there's not petty bickering and fighting and slander and gossip, but there's care, where those who are excluded and outcast are loved and included, where those who are broken and hurting are brought healing, and those who don't have much are, are given by those who have more, and that there's generosity. He says, that's the kingdom of God, and it's a real kingdom. And then he does this contrast. How are things going here in the kingdom of earth? I mean, all you have to do is read a newspaper, go online, watch the news. Things aren't going so well here. A lot of hatred, a lot of division, there's war, there's corruption, there's injustice, there's racism, the exploitation of women and children, thousands of babies 
dying of starvation every single day that don't need to. The kingdom of this earth is in a bad state. And the problem is because we dwell here and we hear this over and over again is that we just kind of get used to it. Years ago, probably in the 90s, Bruce Hornsby in the range, uh, I know it takes us way back, had this song, that's just the way it is. Some things will never change. And we hear that, we begin to believe that. And so we begin to think, well, I wanna be a part of this kingdom of God, but I'm stuck here in this kingdom of earth. And I just so want to lose and leave this sorry existence. I just, I just wanna, I just wanna I get up here to the kingdom of God where everything is set right, where everything is perfect. And the beam me up, Scotty, prayer. That's just the way things are. Some things will never change. It's just the way things are. And then he says, but don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? Because Jesus says, I've got a plan. And this is my plan. The plan is not to try and get you out of this sorry world and get you up into heaven. The plan is, I want those who are part of my kingdom to take part of this kingdom and bring it here. And what Ortberg would say is, up there, down here. That we as the citizens of the kingdom of God, we bring what's up here, the reign and the rule of God, and we bring it down here. And this, this is the essence of that most famous prayer that Jesus prayed that's a part of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Lord's Prayer, where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, up there, down here. That's what Jesus prayed for. Jesus himself was an example of this. Jesus, the incarnate one, what did he do? He came from up there and came down here. Philippians chapter two said that while he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a certain being, made in human likeness, up there, down here. Jesus lives this out. See, Jesus' goal is, yes, someday you're gonna get to heaven, but his primary goal is not to get you into heaven, it's to get heaven into you and to bring the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, through us to this world, to this earth that we bring up there, down here. And when we do that, when we understand our calling, then we live on purpose and for a purpose. We live in a right way with God to bring about the kingdom of God as kingdom bringers here on this earth. That was Jesus' plan. That was his, his picture, this whole idea that the kingdom of God now, through Jesus, it's available to ordinary people here and now so that we can experience and live in God's power and his presence and bring the kingdom of God to bear here on this earth. Now let's acknowledge one thing about this kingdom because I think this is, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to acknowledge this because you say, well, okay, well, that's, that's part of the equation. Yes, the kingdom of God is now and not yet. It's now and not yet. I mean, because there will come a day 
when Jesus does set all things right. There will come a day when the lion lays down with the lamb, when the swords are turned into plows. There will come a day when there's no more crying and no more tears. There will come that day. In fact, when John gets this picture, he gets his vision of what it will be like someday. And, uh, and he, he writes this in Revelation. It's, it's, some of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. It comes out of the book of Revelation when he writes, the kingdom of the world has become, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. You know what I'm talking about? That's not right here. This kingdom of this world, there will come a day, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, his Messiah, Jesus. And he will reign forever and ever. That will happen someday. But until that day happens... We can be a part of his kingdom here and now with this calling to bring up there, down here in the way that we live, in the way that we interact, in the way that we go about being the church of Jesus Christ. So that's a little bit about the kingdom. So let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus comes and he preaches the best sermon ever. And we're going to study it for, for, well, 11 weeks, I guess now. We're going to study it for the next 11 weeks. And the reason I set all this up is because what Jesus lays out for us in the Sermon on the Mount is really life in the kingdom culture. It's how we live. What does it look like to be in the kingdom, to live in the power, in the presence of God every single day? And the good news the good news, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this next week. The good news is this is open and available to anybody. Not just pastors, not just super religious, so, you know, spiritual giants. This is open to anybody and everybody. In fact, a little, little uh, preview of next week. Jesus made this statement in Matthew. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God of heaven. Even the tax collectors, these dishonest thieves and the prostitutes who've just kind of thrown morality out the window, they're entering into the kingdom of God. We'll look at that a lot next week. I do want to caution you one thing. As you begin to read and study and maybe even memorize portions of the Sermon on the Mount, if ever you find yourself going, oh, this feels like more stuff I have to do. This feels like more of the law being thrown on my shoulders. This feels like more stuff I've got to, I've got to work on and there's just this heavy duty bound. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and find yourself burdened and weighted down, You've missed the point completely. Because it's not just about adding more laws to your life. And while it's true, Jesus says there's a repentance and there's a change and there's a different life. It's not just going after Christ's ethic, but Christ's life. It's not just doing the right things, just being more religious, jumping through more hoops. It's experiencing the power and the presence of Jesus dwelling right within you. That that is what he calls us to. And could it be that we will discover that the kingdom of God is bigger and better than we ever imagined? That being a part of this kingdom and bringing this kingdom to this world is more satisfying and fulfilling than we ever thought it could have been. So far out exceeds religion and, and duty and just going through the motions but it's walking in the power and the presence of God, collaborating with Jesus to bring up there, 
down here. See, Jesus taught this and he lived it and he modeled it and he prayed it and he believed that there would be those who would hear it and come and experience the good news of the kingdom of God and that their lives would be changed and the world would be changed one day at a time in the power and the presence of the kingdom of God. And I think as we enter into this, if Jesus were to say anything to us today, he would take this line out of the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dig into this, and my prayer is that we won't just learn about it, we will be transformed by it, and we will begin to live it, and our world will never, ever be the same. That we will be kingdom bringers. That we will experience the life as God always intended it. Life in the effective range of God's will, bringing up there, down here. So here's my challenge for you this week. This week, I want to challenge you to read the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, 107 verses, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And maybe, maybe you read a chapter a day or a portion of a chapter a day, or maybe you read the whole thing start to finish. It's just three chapters. And then before we meet again next weekend, would you go back and reread, spend a little bit of time in Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12, because that's what we're going to focus on next week that we can be kingdom bringers in this great kingdom and study the best sermon ever.